The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan. Good morning and welcome to the Building Banking on Values radio show. It is a beautiful morning here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I hope it's a great day wherever you are. The Building Banking on Values radio show goes behind the scenes to shine a light on the global growing values-based banking movement. And just in case you haven't heard of that phrase, values-based banking, and you're wondering what on earth it means, it's also been called sustainable banking, um, socially responsible banking, ethical banking, whatever it is you like to call it. What it is, is a very positive type of banking that really goes back to focusing on the people, uh, the communities and the organizations that put their money in the banks and serves those banks, uh, sorry, serves those communities through economic, social and environmental impact. So it's banking with a conscience and it is growing. So far on this series, we've explored whether banking can have a seriously social conscience, the concept of feminine banking, uh, and the change makers lobbying and teaching for change in the banking sector. We've also explored how research and strategic governance can lead organizational change in banking. And last week, we looked at whether investment banking can actually have a beating heart. And we learned it could. We heard some very personal and very interesting stories from um, a guy called James Vaccaro, who's head of corporate strategy at Triodos Bank in the Netherlands, probably one of the greenest investment banks in Europe. And we also heard from Gil Crawford in the USA, who's general manager of an organization called Microvest. And Gil likes to call Microvest a purposeful capital microfinance company. So they're doing some pretty uh, significant and positive and impactful financial services through microfinance organizations. In this episode, we're going to explore how two organizations are building economic resiliency and independence through financial inclusion. So we're going to hear from Jesse Fripp from the Agucan Agency for Microfinance and Stuart Anderson from Ban City a community-based credit union in BC, Canada. But before that, let's go to David. David Korsland joins us weekly on the show. Um, He's been in the banking and strategic advisory area of banking since the 70s. So David is pretty experienced when it comes to this concept of values-based banking and how banking and finance can actually have a very positive social, economic, and environmental impact. So that's enough for me. Let me hand you over to David, who apparently is vacationing in France this week. So David, thanks very much for joining us. I know you're on vacation. I'm just wondering what the weather is like there in France. Well, I'm I'm sitting in the south of France with blue skies and 19 degrees centigrade, and it's a beautiful beautiful week to be on vacation. But Mm -hmm. I always like to get on the phone with you, Linda, and do the show, so that's great. 
Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. So, David, what's going on in the world of banking and finance, and how does it relate to what we're talking about on the show in terms of values-based banking? Yeah, I, I uh, you know, you know, Lynn, I read lots and lots and lots. So this week, a couple of things came across my desk, uh, and I think they're related, though they don't maybe seem so on, on first glance. Uh, we we were forwarded. Uh, I I do some more calls for the Global Alliance for Banking and Value. We were forwarded a very interesting study on the French banks. The study was done by CCFD Terre Solidaire, Oxfam, Oxfam France, and Secor Catholique Caritas France. Uh, so you can see I have France on my mind this week. And it, they did an extremely in-depth analysis of the large French banks, where they made their money, and particularly how that relates to their use of tax havens. And what makes that quite interesting and quite timely, this report actually came out uh, uh, about a month, a month and a half ago before the Panama Papers, but it shows the ability of large corporations, but also of large banks, to put uh, to, to put their money uh, not necessarily where their taxes are uh, or where their mouth are. So, so if you look at French banks, they make a third of their profits. A third of their profits are made in tax havens, which is quite interesting, since that only has a quarter of their activity, a fifth of the tax they pay, and only a sixth of their employees. And I, I think this is indicative of of how banks facilitate. Uh, shifting of income and tax payments uh, to to locations that pay less taxes, and one could question whether that's really in society's interest. If you make money somewhere, shouldn't you pay taxes there? So that's that, that's sort of one element. And then there was also simultaneously uh, this week, or, or I guess it was last week. Um, uh, there was a very interesting article by John Kay, a columnist for the Financial Times, uh, and, and it was head, headlined, Transparency Over Tax is Not the Answer to Evasion. And he was noting that he actually ended up with an account in a tax haven because that was the, the only way he could engage in certain trades. And I think that's important because there are uh, there's lots of regulations about how you can trade various investments and so forth, and that can lead to very legitimate reasons why you would open an account in what would be otherwise considered a tax haven. I, I raise those two uh, to say that I think the, the great news is that the report by uh, out of France is very concrete evidence of showing very clearly what the large banks are doing using their own reporting, and I think that's fantastic. And then people can make their own conclusions. But just because an activity takes place in a tax haven doesn't necessarily mean it's trying to avoid taxes. But one should ask some questions. So interesting ways uh, in, in what banks do. And banks are quite in the middle of all the uh, uh, setting up companies and, and making sure that revenues and profits are realized in low tax haven locations. Saying- That's sort of my, my first thought. I have a quick question for you. I mean, I would have always assumed that the question of taxes and tax avoidance or even evasion was was a game from an accounting perspective or an accountant's perspective. So uh, can you explain a bit more as to how the banks are involved in this? Is this through products and services that they create from a tax uh, benefit perspective or or is there some other way banks are involved in, in this um, I guess tax reduction or, or tax avoidance um, scheme. Yeah, the, the, the primary involvement is that uh, for a for a uh, company to to have a 
activity in a, in a tax haven. They have to have uh, banking services. You have to open an account. You have to be registered. You have all, all kinds of things you need to do. And, and so the banks are active participants when they open those accounts. And although there's lots of uh, reg- rules and regulations regard- regarding anti-money laundering and know your client, it's still the bank needs to open the account. And it's not saying that these are these companies are necessarily uh, laundering money or whatnot, but it is the case that uh, the bank is a clear player in that. At the same time, certain large banks have units that are actively involved in structuring transactions to be tax efficient. That's how it's usually referred to. Um, when you get behind and look at it more closely, tax avoidance may be a better term, but tax efficiency is a, is the phrase they often use. And in fact, I, I recall a, a very large uh, in, uh, investment bank affiliated with a very large uh, global bank some years ago. When you tore apart their numbers, it was clear that all of their profits were coming from tax transactions. It wasn't coming from helping companies issue debt or equity to create more jobs and more more uh, economy, but merely from finding ways to structure tax transactions so that uh, companies would pay less tax and earning a fee. So banks do it in two different ways. One, they open the accounts and, and service the accounts in the tax havens. And two, some of them have quite large tax structuring units that actually facilitate and develop transactions to facilitate uh, moving uh, profits to to lower tax uh, locations. It's interesting. I mean, tax is a, obviously it's, it's, it's a subject that's on, I guess, on everybody's minds at least once a year here. In fact, I just filed my Canadian tax returns here in the last two weeks. And, and to be honest, on a personal level, I mean, I look for any way I can to reduce my tax bill, but I guess it's, it's within within the guidelines and the law, and it's done through tax credits and, and allowances. But, you know, what are the consequences of, of these systems that seem to be legally set up that allow, um, I guess, allow the, the burden of taxes to be paid? I mean, what are the consequences to economies if, if the taxes either don't get paid through certain systems or schemes or get paid, but to a, a much reduced level. Why should we pay taxes? I think the, the real consequences are, I think, uh, we all benefit from, from the value of society. Banks have certainly benefited from the value of society in terms of the protection of depositors and deposit guarantee schemes. And I, I think one could take the view that uh, all companies have a responsibility to pay their fair share for the infrastructure that society pay, uh, provides, whether that's roads, uh, public transportation, schools and education, uh, health care. And, and so when a company is moving profits from one location to another location, although legal, but where they're really trying to get around paying taxes in, in the location where the, act, the economic activity happens, that leaves less for the government to, to spend. Right, and yeah. that leads to poor public services, poor educated people, and so forth. I guess now's the time that we're talking about taxes. It's good to give a shout out to an organization in the UK that I recently saw won um, uh, a tax recognition award, and that was Ecology Building Society. And Ecology are actually a member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. But it goes back to the whole um, ethos within values-based banking, where the banks tend to be, or the building society, their credit unions, tend to be very transparent in the kind of uh, activities they're involved in, the impact they create, 
and also um, how they invest back in community. And one of those ways is obviously paying taxes back <laughs> into the communities where they earn their, their profits. Correct, correct. And then that leads to my other sort of uh, comment for today, which is about complexity, uh, because there was a fascinating article about uh, bank financial statements, which said basically too much company information makes finance hard to grasp. That I understand because, as you know, we do research on the largest banks in the world every year. And the largest banks in the world provide financial statements, annual reports, that range from three to 500 pages long. An enormous amount of data. But converting that data to information isn't always easy. And, and I, my only quibble with this article about too much company information makes finance hard to grasp is I think it's too much company data. There's not enough information in these reports. I suspect these reports could be much, much thinner if they would disclose the right things. But they're, they're so full with data disclosing everything that you can't really figure out what's going on. Uh, that also leads uh, to, to another comment that came from, uh, uh, this was from, uh, uh, let me check, check the reference. This was also from John Kay, which is about complexity, not size, being the real danger in banking. That's from a couple of weeks ago. And I think the combination of these two, along with what we're seeing on the tax front, uh, gets back to the basic issue. Large, complex financial institutions, I think, create real challenges for society, for investors, for the real economy. Uh, everywhere you look, they create some real challenges. And so the question is, do they deliver anything for that complexity, or do, do they just use it to, to hide? And, and I think that's, I think, the real issue, complexity not size, but unfortunately, complexity and size are often going hand in hand. So I think that's a, a nice segue from the tax issues, because as they get bigger, they also get more complex on the tax side, whereas uh, smaller, more focused, regionally focused uh, financial institutions, they don't need a lot of tax havens. They don't need a lot of uh, complexity. They're busy serving the real economy, providing uh, financing to individuals and enterprises that in turn meets uh, the needs of social empowerment, economic resilience and environmental regeneration. That's the kind of banking I'd like to see, and that's the kind of banking I hope to see more of in the future. David, thanks for that. And you were talking about the kind of banking you'd like to see. I actually saw uh, another report released this week by um, Women's World Banking, and it's about the growing opportunity in, in women's small to medium-sized uh, enterprises in the business sector associated with uh, women as business owners and employers. And apparently there's an estimate that over 70% of women-led SMEs are underserved from a financial and from a banking perspective, and that there's an amazing financing opportunity of something like 200. 85 billion. So I think the more the more of these um, useful information reports, as opposed to database reports, can actually point to significant opportunities, not only to help certain sectors from a business perspective and the communities associated with them, but to help entrepreneurs too. So wouldn't it be wonderful if 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 we have some more banks listening? Um, that they become aware of these sectors that are totally underserved and there are significant opportunities to create social, economic, and environmental impact. Linda, absolutely right. Women entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs, all kinds of small and medium, and even many entrepreneurs need support from banks. And that, that's, they really rely on banks to meet their needs, their banking needs, their financing needs. And that is an underserved market. And underserved markets also can provide decent returns 
on the capital invested. So I uh, heartily support uh, support your your comment. Good to hear that Women's World Banking has, has done a study on that. They're a fabulous organization, and uh, I think uh, we need all kinds of, of entrepreneurs. And it's great that uh, they're focusing on, on getting women involved and getting women the financing they need. And David, just before I go, I know we've only got about one minute, but I just wanted to to leave everybody and leave you with a thought and maybe get a very quick reaction. I saw something on interest rates um, and world central banks and what they're doing, and to me, it's it's alarm bells are ringing. Apparently, the European Central Bank is buying something like 80 billion euros worth of bank bonds per month until even until next year to increase the supply of money, inflation and growth. But really what they're doing is creating money out of thin air and pumping it into the system. So I'm wondering if that's a really great thing to do. And I also saw something on the People's Bank of China who are freeing up money to again to support growth. But what they're doing to support the growth is they're cutting the required reserves of funds that banks must hold on deposit. So, again, it's like, wow, you know, 2008 was only a few years ago, but I'm wondering, have we actually really learned anything? Anyway, it's just a final thought, so I'm I'm hoping there's some some positivity behind that, and I hope it has positive impact. But um, let's just watch this space. At the end of the day, we are bankers, and this is where we put our money, so we should have a say in what happens with it. David, it's been wonderful having you on the show again. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your vacation this week. I intend to do so, Linda. Thank you very much, and speak to you next week. Great. Thanks, David. Talk to you soon. Folks, next on the show, we have uh, Jesse Fripp from the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance. We have a really interesting interview ahead, so come back after the break. Talk to you soon. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. Are you looking to get noticed in today's business world? Listen for Chat with Chickles, what they couldn't teach you in business school. This is the show that will help you survive and thrive in business today. It's what you can do differently that will help you stand apart from everybody else in the field. Lisa Chickles and her guests can show you just how to gain that unique edge. Chat with Chickles can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are two types of leaders in business. Those who are nice, compassionate people. And frankly, they are the people who fail to get a lot done. Then there are those who can get everything done and so much more. But they are greedy, unethical, and self-centered. The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks finds a way to use the best of both types of leaders to help you create a dynamic roadmap to success. Tune in every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. You are tuned in to Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan 
at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values. And welcome back to the Building Banking on Values show. Um, next on the show, we have Jess Fripp, who's the General Manager of the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance based in Switzerland in Geneva. The objectives of ACAM are to reduce poverty, diminish the vulnerability of poor populations and alleviate economic and social exclusion. Jess holds a master's in public management and his concentration in international economic development, a certificate in finance, and he's a former vice chair and member of the board of OICO Credit. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, it's a USA-based organization. He's a member of the board of SEEP and a former member of the advisory board of Arrow Global Capital. Jess has also sought at George Washington University. Jess, welcome to the show. Hi, Linda. Great to be here. Jeff, tell me a bit more about the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance, and also is there a relationship with the Aga Khan Foundation? Well, uh, I was actually going to start with that, Linda. Thanks for that intro, um, because I think really to understand uh, what we do at the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance, uh, you really have to kind of put that in the context of the broader vision uh, and focus of the Aga Khan Development Network, um, uh, which is actually the world's largest private development network, um, and it's, it includes Aga Khan Foundation as well, which is a sister uh, organization uh, to ACAM within the AKDN. Um, and the AKDN is really founded on the premise that, that complex, you know, solving complex global challenges like poverty and exclusion, environmental degradation, really require a, a holistic um, and kind of a long-term uh, solutions approach. So in uh, within the AKDN, there are all types of, of organizations. There are tens of millions of people yearly who are touched by um, AKDN-run uh, and supported activities that include everything from hydropower to health insurance, microinsurance, micro uh, telecommunications, inclusive finance, microfinance included there, uh, even things like reforestation. Um, and we kind of look at, at the role that ACOM plays within that as sort of a red thread if you will, of financial inclusion um, that is really designed to sort of touch uh, all of the elements of, of the efforts of the AKDN. And uh, the Aga Khan Foundation itself is a, it's a private not-for-profit, is that correct? Well, the AKDN is, is, uh, is a foundation structure. Aga Khan Foundation obviously is as well. Uh, ACAM, uh, which I lead, is, is also a Swiss foundation. Um, but our mandate is, is somewhat unique uh, in the sense that um, we uh, essentially uh, invest and, and supervise investments in a series of banks and, and financial institutions uh, in, in various emerging markets that are really focused on advancing the agenda of, of inclusive finance, intermediating investment back into local communities, um, and really creating sort of sustainable uh, financial ecosystems that serve people who are excluded, uh, really, from the uh, the financial services markets, uh, formal markets in the world. And so, so Jess, you're based in Switzerland, but do you serve Switzerland only, or do you serve lots of other destinations and locations? <laughs> oh, actually, uh, I, I, most of what I see in Switzerland uh, are the beautiful mountains when I'm flying in and out of the airport. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is which is always very a very lovely view. Um, but the institutions um, that we uh, that we are shareholders in and and, and supporters of are are really uh, across uh, some of the tougher uh, emerging market countries that you might imagine. So they include Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Egypt, Madagascar, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, and uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and across that sort of country footprint. Our institutions provide uh, savings and credit services to about a million uh, customers uh, per year, uh, most of whom are rural, uh, often smallhold farmers, many small businesses, again, often rural or in rural value chain uh, systems. And we intermediate about uh, a quarter of a billion uh, dollars worth of investments back into those local co- uh, uh, countries and, and communities through those uh, through those households, through those small businesses. And so it sounds like, in a way, you're a, you're an intermediary, I guess, enabling the flow of finance and investing. Is that correct? And if so, where does the money actually come from? We are um, actually an intermediary, and I think that's been an important focus. ICOM as an agency was, was created in 2005 um, um, within the AKDN. And it was created to really provide focus um, to, to the formalization of that intermediation capability, which had been a part of the AKDN's activities in an informal way, sort of community-based savings groups and so forth, you know, from the 1950s. Um, but there was a real recognition that that, that needed, you know, needed the, the advantages of, of formalization. Um, and at the time, you know, the, the recognition that that you know commercial. Uh, financial institution structures could could do that quite efficiently and can do that quite efficiently if they have the right kind of shareholding um, sort of push uh, and, and guidance and uh, vision and mission sort of intensity. Um, so so that's that's really where we focus. And in that respect, of course, um, most of our capital that we're investing is coming coming from those communities that we're that we're serving. So uh, depositors, we actually have. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of depositors who keep their, you know, keep their savings with our institutions, and we then allow that then allows us to invest those savings back into those same communities, into, you know, uh, housing, into productive assets, into small business growth, and and so on. So it's interesting. It seems like the what's happening is the money is coming from the communities and uh, and geography it serves, and it's staying in those communities. It, how important is that? Oh, that's very important. I mean, I think it's it's really critical, um, uh, just from a broader economic uh, development perspective, that you you know you create that uh, virtuous cycle of capital, um, you know, within uh, and for the communities um, that you're trying to really support um, and be supported by, of course, uh, as well in turn. Um, but you know, the institutional structures I think um, are key because it, it, it creates sort of the long-term uh, viability. And the ability to kind of do that into perpetuity. Um, of course, we complement those community resources with, you know, with investment capital and, and um, leverage it to a certain degree with uh, uh, debt financing from like-minded uh, investors and so forth. So we can get more uh, service outreach in, in certain instances. But but it really is that institutional capacity at the core that is that is the focus of the agency. 
And, and just the financing organisations that are on the ground, is that something AKAM sets up or, is, or do you partner with these organisations? All of the institutions that are currently um, within our, our sort of uh, invest network of financial institutions are, uh, were started as Greenfields um, either by ACOM itself or by um, other community-focused organizations like the Aga Khan Foundation within the AKDN um, and then commercialized or, or transformed into uh, formal financial institutions. So they really are, uh, are, are a series of, of really greenfield institutions that were sort of built for purpose of, of serving this, this mandate of um, investing in sustained quality of life enhancements um, and economic and, and social inclusion uh, in those communities where the institutions are located. And so economic and social inclusion, I know it's kind of a, a phrase that's banded about a, a bit, but what's the impact on the ground? Like, what does that mean for people in those areas that wouldn't have had access to financial services or, or wealth building opportunities prior to an agency or an organization being set up? Well, in most cases, um, it, it would mean that, you know, particularly um, an agency like ourselves and the, and the kind of institutions that we operate in the, in the countries where we operate them, you know, our greatest competition is the informal sector uh, to begin with. So, um, you know, the alternative typically for an unserved family is, is our, our money lenders and, um, you know, those types of uh, informal sector uh, alternatives. Um, so, so, and you have, as we know, you know, two billion uh, adults in the in you know in the world, economically active adults in the world, are excluded from, you know, the, those kind of formal sector access. So they don't have a safe place to put savings, for example. Um, you know, it's under the mattress or or what have you, uh, and they don't have the ability to sort of parlay uh, the relationship that they can build with a financial institution by opening a deposit account into. Um, a relationship that can give them access to other types of financial uh, tools and resources that they can use to sort of manage uh, their daily lives and, and um, you know, grow and protect their assets and, and solve, you know, the kind of financial challenges that, that you, know, every, you know, every household and, and every small business has. But, but unfortunately, the majority of the world um, doesn't have access to sort of the instruments to really do that effectively, safely, efficiently, and at an affordable cost. So it's really the, t the type of things that we take for granted in, well, I hate using the phrase, but I guess the more developed world, I don't think we can yet call ourselves the developed world. So it's things right. like improving our own quality of life by helping us to improve incomes, become self-reliant, and also gain the skills and, and I guess the relationships necessary to graduate into mainstream financial markets and then build build wealth. Can you tell me about the, you know, do you have any figures on the amount of people that, that AKAM has, has helped? Well, we know, I mean, again, keeping in mind that, that many of our institutions were, you know, were greenfield institutions beginning in 2005 or, you know, between 2005 and 2010. So we've had a bit of a ramp-up period. Um, We've, we've managed in that in that ten year period to to establish the ten financial institutions on a firm footing, serve uh, a little over three million uh, households and, and small businesses, intermediate about two point two billion dollars worth of of uh, investment back into those communities. Um, but our current service footprint is about um, one million uh, households and small businesses a year, and as I'd mentioned, 
uh, currently we're able to intermediate about a quarter of a billion uh, dollars worth of investment per year back into those communities. Um, so it's a, it's a start. Um, you know, if we we have time to talk a little bit about sort of the the digital uh, disruption realities around us, we know that um, you know there's some new new opportunities and challenges there, and, and we think um, you know there may be um, some openings there to really begin to. Um, build from that that you know starting foundation into something um, even more uh, effective in terms of outreach and and capability to intermediate. But 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 that's where we are now, and um, and I think we've you know we've we've seen you know tangible impact in that regard, and and we've also been able to link to, as I mentioned before, many of the other uh, activities of the AKDN to do things like um, help families get access to to education or, or health care through different types of um, financial services or products. And, and I think that's been, you know, part of the virtuous cycle uh, approach you know, on a non-financial basis in a way, linking to the other uh, areas of, of sort of realities that households and businesses face to help them solve those problems. You mentioned uh, digital disruption and digital channels. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a very um, interesting area. It's a very fast-moving area. There's a lot of uh, hype uh, about it, um, of course. Uh, um, but if you think about that that number of of uh, two billion unserved um, that I mentioned earlier, um, and you think about even microfinance, which is at least in in the current definition of it, it's um, really sort of gained traction in the 1970s, uh, arguably. Um, and with a lot of you know energy, a lot of push, a lot of investment, microfinance you know, you know currently is able to provide about 10% uh, increased access, so you know 200 million people a year. Um, but then we look at uh, things like um, you know mobile telephony and particularly mobile money, um, so the ability to send and receive uh, payments digitally on your mobile phone. Um, that really started taking off in emerging markets, and you know arguably the mid-2000s, uh, and if we look at, at sort of the numbers we're seeing there now, um, they're getting uh, over to the point where there are over 400 million mobile wallet users in the world, in the, in the emerging market world currently, and about 100 million of those were added last year um, alone. So we're seeing an enormous kind of disruption effect. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, the good part is that you see you know, a lot of uh, low-income households, small businesses, people in emerging market economies, you know, being able to access the technology, uh, they're able to uh, get the mobile wallets so that they can, you know, receive a remittance from a, a relative who's working uh, in a major city, maybe they're a rural family, so they can receive that uh, payment more easily, you know, it's safer, um, it's more readily accessible, they don't have to trek a long way, but they're not getting the full benefit of that because, you know, you don't have, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, mobile telephone companies aren't, aren't banks um, and, and they don't have the ability to really intermediate value and, and, and so forth. So, so I think, you know, that's, that's where the sort of the opportunity and the challenge is beginning to open up. I mean, we're seeing, you know, all of these channels providers um, emerging. There's over 200 of them um, and, and over 100 or close to 100 emerging market uh, countries operating now, providing services. Um, so I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity, um, you know, but the challenge is really for organizations, uh, microfinance organizations or banks or any, any type of, you know, sort of conventional, if you will, uh, sort of bricks and mortar 
organizations really kind of reimagine uh, and reconfigure uh, business models to go from you know sort of an analog reality to a, to a digital reality um, and, and learn how to work in partnership with those types of uh, new entrants uh, and, and channel providers. Okay, Jeff, thanks very much for that. And and what a great way to end, I mean, talking about the importance of microfinance and the work of agencies like the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance and what you're doing to change the lives of over 2.5 million low-income households in a number of different regions across the world. And also the challenges around um, digital channels and how they're developing and how that's even transforming the business and the banking model and approach. So it, it, it reminds me of the saying that I've, I've heard quite a few times from values-based bankers is that, you know, we'll always need banking services, but we may not always need banks or microfinance agencies currently <laughs> as how they're structured. So, sure, or, um, Jesse, sorry, my apologies. Very quickly, if people want to find more information uh, about the agency, what's your website address? Uh, it's best to, to find us through the, uh, the AKDN website, which is www.akdn.org. And then you can see there the, you know, really the entire organization, and, and we have a, a site that's linked to the main uh, network site. Um, Perfect. Excellent. Jeff, thank you so, so much for coming on. It's, it, it was great to have you on and, and really wonderful to hear the, the story of how um, a microfinance agency is helping to, to change the world for the better and create positive economic, social and environmental impact. Folks, um, after, after the break, we will have Stuart from Van City Credit Union in Canada. So stay with us. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are tuned in to Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. 
That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. We just had Jess Fripp, General Manager of the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance based in Geneva on the line, uh, talking about the impact that they're helping to facilitate across the world. Um, and now I'm going to take us back to the continent of North America. We're going to speak with Stuart Anderson, Manager of Community Investment Indigenous Partnerships with Van City. Van City is also known as Vancouver City Savings Credit Union based in BC, Canada. Stuart grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's worked in financial services for the last 25 years and has a very strong background in economic development, project finance, and corporate lending. He also says he's a very keen awareness of the importance of relationship building, which I'd imagine comes in really handy, especially um, in his current role with Indigenous Partnerships. Stuart's clients have included Aboriginal social services agencies, First Nation governments, Aboriginal and First Nation development corporations, and First Nation private sector joint ventures. In his current role as manager of Indigenous Partnerships, Stuart works to broaden and deepen Van City's involvement with Aboriginal communities in and beyond the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people. Stuart, if I'm correct, the Coast Salish people consist of um, Squamish Nation, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam. Is that right? Well, thank you, Linda. Uh, it's partially right. Uh, Coast Salish is the is the name for the language groups around what was before colonization known as the Salish Sea. So it, it crosses the border between Canada and the United States and includes many communities and nations who um, all have similar language and cultural history. Fantastic. So it's it, it's actually a perfect segue into into learning more about um, the work that you do with Indigenous partnerships and the challenges that Indigenous communities face from a banking and financial inclusion perspective. Can you tell us a bit more about your role um, and what role specifically Van City plays in, in helping to, to, I guess, financially in- include more communities? Well, I think for many, many generations in Canada um, and in North America, uh, Indigenous peoples have been isolated and marginalized and, you know, through colonization and, you know, settler activity have really been kind of not included in economic activity that's gone on in uh, North America. So there's a, a resurgence and a recognition that many First Nation communities are not participating in local economies, um, have had many barriers to allowing them to participate, and in many cases their resources, the access to land, access to the resources on those lands, um, determination over how those lands are used was taken away. So really for us, it's, it's, it's understanding some of that history and some of the impact of colonization and then looking at how we as a credit union can adapt, change, understand, and start reflecting the needs of those communities and then supporting those communities and assisting them in building their capacity so that they can better interact with uh, mainstream uh, institutions. 
And Stuart, tell me why Van City is involved in, in in this kind of activity. Like I'm sure the the perhaps the larger banks in in Canada are not quite doing are not committing in this in the same way that Van City Credit Union is committing to this kind of um, relationship building, um, a very transparent and very genuine relationship building with um, Indigenous people. So why is Van City so committed to it? Well, I think we're we're applying sort of our what we call our good money model, which is you know, and as Jess pointed out in the previous segment, it's all about ensuring that capital stays in community, and it's ensuring that that money in community recycles and circulates within the community um, to enhance the economic opportunities and the freedom of choice for those communities with respect to how they participate and are involved in the uh, larger economy. So from Van City's perspective, I think, you know, we won't say that other organizations aren't doing this work. They, they, they certainly are. I think the difference is our approach. And the approach that we're taking is that we're working from a, a ground-up capacity perspective. We're working, uh, we're meeting our members where they are at, and we're not expecting them to come to us. We're adapting our programs, products, and services to reflect the needs in community as opposed to providing, you know, suitcase solutions. So I think we've, we've been very much taking a, a, an early stage relationship, partnership, community stakeholder approach of building those relationships first, helping identify and working to um, identify opportunities, and then looking at how we can bring the tools that we have as a credit union to support those community objectives. So it's just a different approach. It's much more of a, a long-term relationship-driven approach than it is a transactional approach at the moment. Well, it's, it's, uh, thanks for correcting me, actually, because it's very honorable for you to say that, you know, Van City isn't the only financial institution doing this kind of work, that there are other mainstream banks out there doing this, but that I do recognize that you have a different approach. So it, I guess it just goes to show that Van City has a different approach to, to relationships. And um, Stuart, you mentioned, um, you know, that the suitcase approach to products and services doesn't work. So can you give me some concrete examples of of how Van City has, I guess, either created a different approach to financial services with Aboriginal communities or tailored existing products and services to meet those needs? Well, I think probably one of the best and most recent examples is a partnership that Van City formed with the, the Namgis Nation in the village of Alert Bay up at the north end of Vancouver Island. So it was a community that um, was without financial services. The previous financial services provider had left the community. Um, the Namgis reached out to us because we had relationships with them in, in other economic development initiatives um, and said, you know, is there something that we could do? So what we did was we sat down with the community and we said, here are the services we could provide. Here are the tools that we could bring to the community. What does the community need? And then how is there reciprocity here? How can we make sure that whatever we're doing in the community is financially sustainable, both for us and for the communities? So there is a commitment on all sides to build business, uh, to create opportunities, to support each other in the initiative. Uh, so we're a year into this uh a year, just over a year into the partnership, and we're just coming up to the one-year anniversary of the branch opening 
And we're about two years ahead of our model in terms of, you know, reaching financial sustainability. So we're quite excited about how we can bring our tools um, to work from a social justice and from an economic inclusion perspective, but we can also have it as a viable business opportunity for us and support the local community initiatives and support the local economy as it starts to rebuild. So it's incredible, really, that um, it's it's proof that, you know, when other banks are closing down branches, Fancy is opening them in more remote communities, um, you know, from the basis of, of building economic independence and, and wealth. Uh, and it's also proving that there's profit in positive impacts because let's be let's be honest about it. I mean that's something that more most mainstream bankers will ask: is it's great? It sounds great, but you know, is it sustainable from a business perspective? So it sounds like it is. And um, very quickly, uh, Stuart, I wanted to take you to uh, Reconciliation Canada. I know Van City has been involved in some initiatives there. Could you quickly just just give us some highlights or tell us where you're at currently? I, I thought I saw something where three of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values members actually in Canada recently committed to, to something from, a, 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 I guess, a Reconciliation Canada perspective. For sure. Um, for, for our international listeners, um, the reconciliation was somewhat late coming to Canada, but there was a recognition that work needed to be done to create opportunities and space for dialogue um, amongst Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. So we went through a process that was led by the uh, federal government through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Their final report was released uh, late last year, and they came up with 94 calls to action. Um, Most of those calls to action were around education, government, institutions, but there was, uh, there was also uh, one call to action for business. And so the three Global Alliance uh, members in Canada, Affinity Credit Union uh, in Saskatchewan, Assiniboine Credit Union in Manitoba, and Van City in British Columbia, um, all formally adopted the Reconciliation Commission call to action, you know, making a public statement last month. And now we're all working to identify within our organizations, what does that mean? Um, how do we as an organization um, work towards reconciliation? And how do we ensure that we're authentically and um, responsibly and um, actively um, doing this work and living up to the calls to action? So that's kind of where we are at. So we're, we're looking at education within our staff, within our membership. We're looking at building meaningful relationships in communities, and across communities, and we're also looking at economic development opportunities and employment opportunities um, with Indigenous communities on and off reserve. So the urban and Aboriginal communities or the more rural, remote um, Aboriginal communities. Fantastic. Stuart, thanks very much for that. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that there's such work happening and also such very practical commitment from a business perspective to to reconciliation and to uh, inclusiveness, really, from a, a community perspective. Stuart, it's been great having you on the show. If people want to find out more about the work that you do and the work that Van City does in terms of community investment and Indigenous partnerships, uh, is there a web a site we can point them to? Absolutely. I think if you go to www.vancity.com, 
Um, and then just uh, using our search engine and asking some questions and looking about um, who we are and, and what we're all about and how we do our work and understanding more about the business model that we follow. Uh, there should be some good information there for the listeners. Fantastic, Stuart. Uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I know you're at a retreat, so if you wouldn't mind, just stay on the line. I just want to give a quick summary to our listeners uh, and talk about next week's show. So, folks, what a wonderful show. I mean, we, we've learned about the world of, I guess, economic development and the important role values-based banks can play in that from a, um, a, a regional perspective across the world, but also from a, a more developed perspective, if I could say that, from a North American perspective. And it just goes to show you how important how important this um, the relationship building and keeping people and communities at the center of banking is because there's development required across the world, whether we're in developed countries and non-developed countries. So great insights there from the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance based in Geneva and also from Stuart Anderson uh, representing Van City in BC. A quick shout out to, um, I was just checking the, the world of social media and the hashtag that we use for the show, Banking on Values. So um, shout out to Banca Etica in Chile, who are following and promoting the show. Thanks for joining, folks. Um, a shout out to Cultura Bank in Denmark, who are also promoting the show, which is great. And a quick shout out to a guy called Olaf Weber, who's just launched a book on this very topic um, it's called Sustainable Banking. So if you Google Sustainable Banking and Olaf Weber, O-L-A-F-W-E-B-E-R, you'll find some information on the book. I think it's a really cool sign that, again, this movement is growing. There are more books and more authors writing about this approach um, to banking and the banking models associated with it. And I think Olaf even mentioned, mentions some of the people and the organizations that we've had on this show so far. Um, Bank Australia have a really cool story about staying true to its customer base and customer-owned model. It's a customer-owned bank, which is very interesting, quite like credit unions um, and building societies. But basically, Bank Australia explains how it puts profit and how it uses the profit of its customers from a socially responsible investment perspective. And dare I say it, a shout out too to JP Morgan, who are, seem to be joining the pledge to quit coal. So they're shifting um, or they've committed to shifting their lending and capital from coal, which is a great sign to see the more mainstream or conventional banks do the same thing. Uh, next week, please join us on the show. I'm really excited. We have Tamara Vrooman, who's actually the CEO of Van City. So Tamara will be on next week chatting about Van City and more about how they invest in community. Tamara also met Pope Francis, so um, definitely a leader in terms of values-based banking. And we also have Susan Arterian Chang, who represents the field guide to investing in regenerative economy. Folks, that's it. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, we've already reached well over a thousand listeners, so please um, join the conversation. You can tweet me at Catalyst Warrior. You can tweet at Voice AM Business. Uh, you can uh, email me, lynda.ryan at gabv.org. And please tell people about the show. This is how we raise awareness, and this is how we put the power back in your pockets. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 